the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 140 for February 4th, 2008. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I'm Dave Hamilton, of course. I'm here with uh, John Braun. John and I come to you every week as uh, as we like to do and uh, talk about all things Mac and beyond. How are you, John? Fantastic. So how was that? Gift? What a game, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it actually was a good game. It was a fun game to watch. It was a uh, it was a shame that it didn't end as predicted, but uh, as it know. should have. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they think the that Patriots. Yeah, well, uh, all right, so we have all kinds of... Uh, there's been plenty of talk about the, the game, so we'll move right on here. Uh, the uh, Let's see. Uh, we have all kinds of stuff to talk about. John and I each have a couple of war stories to uh, tell, depending on how much time we've got here, some stuff that we've each gone through with our own machines, and perhaps we can share tidbits of information that help you from dealing with similar things, or at least help you if you have to deal with similar things. We've got some questions about storage. We've got some questions about CPUs. I have finally made it. I, I finally, this afternoon, John, I spent about three hours going through all of the email that we had because I got behind while we were at Macworld and mm-hmm. I never really caught up. I was always just a couple of weeks behind, but I caught up with everything and, uh, and we'll move on. Uh, so that's that. I, you know, I also, uh, speaking of Macworld, many of you asked, if I was going to post the slides for the session that I did, the running your Mac lean, clean and mean. And I did They're up on my blog at Dave, the nerd.com and, uh, and you can check them out there. We'll put a link directly to that blog post in the show notes, but uh, it's the most recent blog entry, at least as of this very moment and knowing my blog posting frequency, it will likely stay that way for a little while. Uh, you want to tell us your, uh, your war story, John, you want to, you want to, so this war story, so actually, you know, I was a little, uh, you may not have noticed, I was a little distracted uh, at our last show. And it was because when I was prepping for the show, I ran into a problem that was like churning in the back of my mind because it was really bothering me and I had not resolved it um, in time, by the time the, the show came up. And this was, that you may heard, heard me mumble about it, is that my WRT54G, which is a Linksys uh, wireless router that I then upgraded with DDWRT firmware, and this is the um, kind of feature-reduced firmware because these newer bases have less memory, so they came out with what they call the micro version. It's you know, very, somewhat limited compared to the full firmware that works in some of the older ones. Okay. And so what happened is I was starting to, I wanted to find the WDS screen for, you know, extending your, um, your base station. And so I went to the router, there's a, you know, you type in the IP address and it comes up with a username and password. So I type in the username, the password, the prompt goes away and it comes back again. And I'm like, Oh, Hmm. Okay. Good. That's not good because I know what the username and password is. So I mean, immediate thought, and then I started freaking out is that I thought somebody may have hacked it. And I'm like, well, if somebody hacked it, then why is it still working? I mean, it has all the same, you know, crypto keys and it's handing out addresses properly. Everything's working fine. Okay. Um, so I'm like, huh, maybe someone didn't hack it. Maybe, you know, I just got to reset it. Now, normally, and this is where I started getting frustrated. So normally what you do with these is you hold down the reset button for like 15 or 30 seconds. But I believe because either I had disabled it or this micro firmware doesn't support it or who the heck knows, maybe the button was busted. It wouldn't reset. And I'm like, oh, man. 
Okay. So that's not working. So it's like, so I can't, because you can reset it to the default admin username and password, which was my goal. Right. And I'm like, huh, you know, am I going to have to maybe, because one way of doing that on these, but this is where, where it gets dangerous, is you short two pins on the flash memory oh. or on the circuit board and that'll reset it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that because especially with surface mount components and all that, Dude. you know, you, you, you slip up and, and it's a $50 paperweight. You've got a nice little brick there. That's right. So I'm like, well, let me see if I can get to the thing at all. And so I tried to telnet to it. Okay. And it would let me telnet with my password. Ah, so the username and password was correct. Uh, yes, there were remnants of it left over. And so I'm like, okay, I'm getting in. Now I got to get it back to a known state. Right. And fortunately, so I did a bit of poking around. And what you can do is once you telnet in and it's running like a subset of Unix or yeah. uh, VxWorks, I think, uh, that they switched over to. But anyways, it's running something where you can issue commands. And here's what fixed it. The command was erase space nvram semicolon space reboot. And what that did was, as you can probably assume, you know, figure out it erased the NVRAM, which restores it to the default admin username and password. So I had to punch some stuff um, in again, though. Actually, I think I could have restored off of a safe file. I hadn't thought of that, um, but it wasn't a lot of stuff to type in and it came back. So I went from freaking out that it was busted or someone had compromised it to, I mean, as far as I can guess, you know, I mean, I guess RAM and and. Even if it runs for a really long time, things can still get corrupted and, and scrambled. Well, yeah, so. I, I run that DD Wirt firmware here, too. Mm-hmm. And and as we were going through this, you know, we, we talked about it before we recorded last week's show. And uh, I've noticed a thing where the uh, the HTTPD daemon, which is the engine that responds to web requests and actually creates that whole web interface that you get on that, mm-hmm. on that Linksys router will just shut down or simply stop responding. And I think you found that it wasn't even running. It, it just wouldn't run at all. Uh, and even if you rebooted the router, like power cycling it or whatever, that didn't help. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fire up for whatever reason, but thankfully this fixed it. So yeah, when, when you emailed me that that was the magic answer, uh, I filed that away in a very, very safe spot because if I ever run into that same thing, uh, I definitely wanted to know that information. So this was for those of you. And, I, and there's actually quite a few of you that run DD Wirt firmware out there, uh, either on our recommendation or uh, or that you found on your own. Mm-hmm. But it, it does add quite a bit of functionality and uh, flexibility, if you will, to the, the Linksys routers. So cool. Mm-hmm. I got it originally because WDS at that point that I bought this, which was you know several years ago, um, the Apple base stations really weren't supporting that too well, whereas these were. So right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right. So, you know, I've got the, the G5 iMac over at the house, John, right? Mm. And I, I use it as kind of my home machine. In fact, not kind of, it is my home machine. I, I'll check email and stuff there, but I, I do a lot of, you know, just kind of hacking around on it. Well, I, uh, woke up, I'm guessing this is, uh, Saturday morning and, uh, I'm messing around with it. Maybe it was even Friday morning and, uh, messing around with it, you know, it's the screensaver's running, but it, it hadn't, the screen hadn't gone to power down. It was just floating through. I, my screensaver is just it floating through images of our vacation, right? And so it's doing that. And it's going from one image to the other, doing the whole Ken Burns thing. It's like, okay, well, I wonder why it didn't go to sleep. So I moved the mouse. No. Tap the keyboard. No. Just still going through the screensaver. I'm like, well, That's kind of weird. I checked the USB connections. No. Okay, well, nothing I can do. So I powered the thing down. And then I, you know, give it the, the requisite 30 seconds and I power it back up. 
No, it, it gets like halfway through the boot process and oh, no, it actually didn't even get to the boot process. I get the, the little two Mac faces alternating with the question mark. Oh, this is bad. Which means I can't find anything to boot from. You got it. That's exactly right. Yep. So I thought, well, okay. Uh, so, you know, I hold down the option key, but that didn't pull up anything. And I went and uh, put in the Leopard's DVD. Actually, I think I had a Tiger DVD. I didn't have a Leopard DVD right in the house. So I put a Tiger DVD in and all I was, was going to do was run Disk Utility to see if I could get the thing to mount. And it found the drive. And I thought, okay, well, this is good. And I had it run... Um, disk repair or verify disk actually first. And it found all kinds of problems that it could not fix. And I thought, okay, well, here we go. Now it's time for disk warrior, right? That's, that's the thing that I'm going to do. So I put disk warrior in and I boot up from that, that uh, DVD or CD, I guess. And I get it up and it finds the disk and I say, okay, go ahead and, and, you know, do your thing. And it, what, what disk warrior does is it scans the whole disk and then rebuilds the catalog file. It doesn't try to fix it. It just creates a new one. And once it creates it before it saves it, it allows you to preview the two against each other, the old one that exists physically on the disk. And then the new one that it's, that it's about to create, it's kind of got it as a Ram image. Well, it got to the end and it would let me preview the new catalog and, and also see the old one, but it would not let me commit the new catalog to disk. It said because of disk errors, that there's this problem. I'm thinking, oh, this is bad. And so I, I was able to copy some stuff off it. I had some big files on there. Nothing on there was mission critical. Otherwise, I would have been backing it up. But I'd had a couple of DVDs that I had uh, ripped. You know, we make we make the copies that we can put in the car. And uh, and I had a couple of those on there and, and I'd already converted them and stuff. But none of those files, none of the VOB files from the DVDs would copy over. It was just disk errors as I was trying to copy them to a Firewire drive that I plugged in. And I tried this every which way from Sunday. I tried it booting up from the CD in the iMac with a FireWire drive connected. I brought over my MacBook Pro, plugged that in, put the thing in FireWire target disk mode and tried to do it that way. Nothing. No way I was getting data off. So I took a couple of screenshots of files that I knew that I uh, was going to want to restore so that I just remember what what I was losing. And uh, and then I figured, you know, I I could do the whole uh, spin right thing, which is a piece of Windows. So I guess it's actually MS DOS software that runs on a PC that'll go through and, and try and, and, and actually extract data off the drive. It'll kind of do your at, at home drive savers, if you will. But I yeah. thought, you know, there's no reason to do that. I don't need the data that's on here. Let's just try and reformat it and see if Leopard will install on there. And, and so I did, I reformatted the drive and the reformat went fine. And the Leopard installation got about halfway through and died disk error. Okay, so the drive's dead. So I call it. This is uh, this is Saturday now. I call um, my local Apple uh, uh, authorized service center near me, and their service guy. I, I was just curious how long it was going to take to fix this, and and I did even drop the you know Dave from TMO thing, hoping maybe they could you know mm-hmm. help me out. But it, it didn't matter. They, their tech guy wasn't in, so you know it, it was fine. My wife was like shaking her head at me. She's like, you know, you really shouldn't do that. I'm like, yeah, I know I shouldn't, uh, but I did. It didn't matter. So I, then I went online and I remembered, oh, yeah, Apple Care has the whole online thing because I didn't want to wait on, on the phone for like two hours on a Saturday for Apple Care. Um, mm. But so I went online and, and Apple has the do it yourself repair thing. And so I went through and answered a series of questions and they shipped me a hard drive. So it should be here in the next day or two. And uh, I swap it out and I'll send it back and that'll be the end of that. But uh, yeah, because I was so, going to say one of the fun things. So that's a great story that uh, 
Well, you know, I found a few things. So data rescue is a nice tool from our friends at ProSoft Engineering. Yep. Uh, if things start going, um, yep. that's a utility that I've had success with in the past that can resurrect things when some of the things can't. So it's uh, something worth trying. It sounds like you, you may have, well, you didn't have anything really critical, but, no. uh, but that's a good tool for that sort of thing. Now, one thing I like doing with uh, a lot of hard drives, uh, I don't know if you've cracked one open as of late, assuming that you have a hard, well, this one you got to send back to them. But um, I do. Yeah, otherwise they'll charge me 244, no, $277 they'll charge me. For a 250 gig, 7200 RPM SATA drive, if I don't ship the bad one back. Wow. Yeah. That must be the <laughs> Cadillac of hard drives or, or yeah, whatever. Something. But, um, but one thing I mentioned is that in a lot of hard drives, they have these very, very powerful ceramic magnets that are just oodles of fun to play with. Yeah, you know me and magnets, right, John? You know I get like really wigged out around magnets. I can feel them in my hands and stuff. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that I should be admitting that to, you know, 25,000 people or whatever it is. But yeah, there you go. It's like might... X-Men or something. Oh, OK. All yeah. right. So not for you, but but I've I've taken some out of a few hard drives. And yeah, they are incredibly strong. So, right. Anyways, that's your worst story. So then now that is. all our stuff is working or in the process of working. Yeah, it it did. It, it did make me realize that, you know, even though I don't have anything mission critical on there, it is going to be a real pain in the neck to rebuild this thing. So. I have learned my lesson. I will continue to, I will start backing up this drive. And it actually made me rethink my entire backup strategy. You know, I've been using mm -hmm. retrospect. I've died in the wool retrospect user. They've come out with retrospect 10, which is great because I wanted the universal version because it really chews up the Ram running in Rosetta on my MacBook pro. Well, that's not going to be out. You know, they showed it at Macworld. Unfortunately, that's not going to be out until Q3 or Q4 of this year. There is a beta program and we'll put a link up uh, that you can apply for this. It's a publicly accessible beta program, uh, but I'm not interested in running beta software to, to, for my mission critical backup. So I think I am, I, I think I am when I order my new MacBook pro, which I think I'll do in the next couple of weeks, I think you and I might be ordering them at about the same time. I'm also going to go ahead and order a time capsule and uh, I'll get the, the gig version. I'll back up all the uh, leopard machines that way. And then if I need to do some additional backups on my work computer, I can do that with, uh, you know, with, with some other backup utility that, uh, that runs universal. And Don't you mean the tear version? You said the gig version. Sorry. Yeah. The one gig version wouldn't really cut it. Would it? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Terabyte will terabyte will do it. Yeah. So I'll have one of those to play with in the next week or two that, uh, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So that's uh, that's the end of that war story. I have other war stories, but you know what? I'll, I'll save them for another show because we uh, we have plenty of your questions and tips. But first, John, I think you're going to tell us uh, we, we, our first sponsor for this show is Audible. And of course, through the special link. Now, the link has changed. The link is now audiblepodcast.com slash MacGeekGab. If you happen to click the old one, it will still work. It will still get you through. And of course, we still get uh, credit for referring you there. And that's always good to keep Audible happy. Uh, but audiblepodcast.com slash MacGeekGab will get you a free download and a 14-day free trial of Audible Listener Gold. And John, you went through and found yet another book for us and, uh, and tell us about it uh, briefly here. Yes, though um, this one is, is not happy and funny like the other book. It's actually rather sad. Um, and it's The Bad Beginning, a multi-voice recording, a series of unfortunate events, number one. And this is one of the Lemony Snicket books. Uh, if you've read the series or you know about the series or you may have seen the movie, um, it's very funny. And, and the uh, 
or it's, it's funny and sad. And, and a, a quick summary that they give here that gives you a flavor of the book, they say, like a car alarm, bagpipe music, or a doorbell ringing in the middle of the night, hearing this all-new audio edition of The Bad Beginning will only upset you. <laughs> Very nice. Um, and it goes through the, the story of this family that, that just has one catastrophe after another happen to them. Um, from a, a villain to itchy clothing to cold porridge for breakfast. Um, it's, a, it's very good. So I, I would recommend that as something to check out. All right. And again, using audiblepodcast.com slash MacGeekGab, uh, the link will also be in the show notes. You get that one. You can get that book for free uh, downloaded and, uh, and you get your 14 day, 14 day free trial that way too. All right. Uh, on to your questions. Speaking of hard drives, Tynan writes, and says, I'm going to upgrade the hard drive in my MacBook from 80 to 160 or perhaps something larger. My question is, what is the easiest way to get all of my stuff on the old one to the new one? Also, I just upgraded to Leopard using the single user versus the family pack disk. Will I be able to install Leopard on my new hard drive? All right. I thought about this, John, and, and I think going a, a little bit old school is probably the right way. What I would do is take the uh, old hard drive out put the new hard drive in format it and make sure you format it with GUID, which would be the default in theory, but, but do that because otherwise it won't boot your MacBook. It needs to be formatted GUID to boot the MacBook. Once you've done that in the boot from the installer, which you'll already be in. So, so you, you put the new hard drive in, you boot from the leopard disc and choose from the utilities menu, disc utility, format the disc, and then go to the restore tab. And what you can do most of the time you're, doing this restore from a disk image to a hard drive, but you can restore from one full hard drive to another. So very carefully choose the correct source and the correct destination. Uh, you don't want to mix this up. Otherwise you'll wipe out your old drive. The source of course would be your old drive, the destination, your new drive, and then just click restore. And it'll take a little while. Obviously it's beaming all that data across. Uh, now you ask, how am I going to go ahead and mount my old hard drive externally? Well, if you have an external hard drive case, you can use that. Otherwise, for 29 bucks, I think, John, that, that newer tech universal drive adapter is exactly mm -hmm. what you want. Uh, it's it's ex essentially an external hard drive case without the case. It's just a series of cables and wires and it's USB on one end and a hard drive connector on the other. Plug it in. That'll mount it. Copy it over. And it's only 29 bucks. So you, you don't need to mount it in a big case or anything. You just plug it in and go. And uh, and that's that's what I would do. Uh, you got any thoughts on that? Or are you you uh, you happy? With um, well, I think you know there are other candidates, but I I like the the one that you mentioned because uh, people don't know that that ability is inside of this utility. Of course, there are other things like carbon copy cloner, super duper, sure. um, things like that. But of course, you you know you need a uh, a case. But yeah, I like the restore. It, it it's kind of misleading, right? And and yeah, to your point, be very careful about what you choose because it will not hesitate to destroy everything. Yeah, I, I, we had one uh, one listener write in with a very, very good piece of advice. I'm pretty sure it was a listener. Somebody recently told me, I always rename the drive, old one, new one, or something very, very clear so that when I'm in, in the disk utility and using the restore tab, I'm not going to screw it up. So take those words, factor them into yes. your, your procedure, and uh, and just, just make sure. Because the last thing you want to do is to take a blank hard drive and use it to overwrite your old one. It'll go very fast. Yeah, and I fast. do that with mine. I, I have an external case and I will, um, I actually name it, I think it's PowerBook HD Backup. Okay, there you go. Yeah. 
So when I use my utility, because yeah, you know, just, just one slip. And, uh, you know, as soon as it starts doing its thing, it's, it's pretty much game over. You know, I, I wish I could do that, John. My, my problem of course, is that I name all of my hard drives after Miles Davis songs. Uh, now Miles Davis, thankfully had a, a, a very long and illustrious, well, not <laughs> actually his career could have been longer, but he, but he was quite prolific. And so, uh, I, on my MacBook Pro, I'm 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 going to have to lose this because, of course, that hard drive is going to go away. But but I have Orgon, which is the name of one of his songs, as as my hard drive, and then Gone, Gone, Gone is the uh, the the duplicate drive. And so I, I was very proud that that I, I was able to find those two. But again, that's going to uh, disappear when I get the new MacBook Pro. But all in the name of progress. Scott writes mm-hmm. in, John. I think this is a good one for you. What is the difference between the solid state hard drive on the new MacBook Air and a regular hard drive? Is it worth the extra cost? Huh. All right. So the second part of that is an opinion. And the first, <laughs> uh, which I think is a bit easier to approach, is, the, uh, is the, the technical. So the big advantage with solid state is going to be uh, speed. Um, when you're talking reading you're always talking faster than a mechanical hard drive when you're reading from a solid state drive. And you're talking usually uh, sometimes slower writing, but in, in a lot of cases, much faster writing. So speed is your one advantage. Along with that is power draw. You're going to be uh, drawing less power with a solid state because, you know, there's no motors or anything. It's all electronic. So, you know, you can squeak a little extra battery life, um, you know, and especially with a machine like the Air, which uh, there's only one battery, uh, though it can be replaced. So you want to be, uh, you know, as efficient as possible. So, so I would imagine that the battery would last longer with the flash drive. So there's advantages. Um, now, here's some of the disadvantages. And I would say the, the first and foremost is um, cost. What is it? It's, it's almost a grand, right, Dave? Uh, over, I think it's over a grand. Yeah. It's yeah. 64 gigs at the normal retail price uh, versus I think a 80 gig hard drive is another option. Yeah, it so comes. Big, it's a what I think the deal is it's a 1.6 gigahertz MacBook Air with the 80 gigabyte, 80 gigabyte physical regular hard drive or for more than a thousand bucks more. I think you bump up to the 1.8 gigahertz with the flash. Mm-hmm. I don't, and and I may be very wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure you can't get the 1.8 without getting the flash. So, uh, but I might be mm-hmm. wrong. So that, yes, the cost is, it, it's over a thousand bucks more. So, so the big disadvantage is it costs so much more now. Is it worth it? I mean, you know, in my opinion, I wouldn't spend that much extra money on a smaller, potentially faster, potentially less power drawing mechanism i mean it's almost like a ram disk but um and the other downside though is um and you can chime in here dave but the other downside that then i'd like to get your thought on this is um write cycles um flash or or memory devices and this has to be a flash device have a limited number of write cycles now that may not be a big deal because they typically numbers in the hundreds of thousands um some high performance uh flash memory you may be talking the low millions um uh, but that's the, to me could be the only potential downside is uh, all flash style memory will eventually not work anymore. Now, right. whether that's going to take longer than before a mechanical hard drive fails, uh, I guess the, you know, the jury's still out on oh, that. I haven't seen point. a lot of figures to indicate which would go first under normal usage. Cause as, as you found Dave, hard drives <laughs> will also fail. Yeah. That that's and, actually a very good point, John. That's right. When we were talking about this before the show, I was thinking, oh, you know, we were talking about the flash memory dying, and I thought, oh, yeah, that, that does kind of stink. But, of course, yeah, it also happens with the physical stuff. So, 
Yeah. So I don't know. What do you do? You think it's worth it? Uh, well, it's a $1,300 Delta. It's 1800 for the, mm. the, but of course you're getting a, a faster processor out of it. So, you know, a little, maybe 10% more, a little bit more than 10% more speed, but 1300 bucks. I, I, no, I, I don't, I, I don't, it, for me, I wouldn't do it. No, it, it, it's just not worth it. How much extra battery life am I going to get? Maybe an hour, right? I mean, it's not going to be a whole lot more and, uh, I, it's not going to be that much faster either. Uh, no, I don't think so. It, what yeah, would be cool what I've read if, about that machine, the battery life is uh, the five hour figure is, um, how shall we put it? Um, optimistic. There you go. I'm seeing people get it to maybe two and a half, three hours. So because of that, and you can't replace it with another battery, maybe if you absolutely have to have your machine working and there's no juice anywhere, maybe it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, Pilot Pete's sitting next to me, and he he pointed out that the uh, the solid state drive, the sixty four gig flash memory, could potentially take rougher treatment. Uh, I, I don't mm. know if you want to be dropping the thing, but if you do, uh, it you know maybe it it certainly will last better than a hard drive would again because there's there's that uh, lack of moving right. parts. So yeah. no shock damage. That that's a very good point yeah. because uh, though, though a lot of hard drives now, I I believe the one that they have in that machine, but. Most modern hard drives now actually have a circuit. I think they call it the uh, sudden motion sensor. Right. Um, or it goes under different names here, which will actually detect high Gs. And if it detects that, it assumes that it's falling and it will park the hard drive head to minimize the chance of damage. But um, with the you know flash drive, as you pointed out, there are no moving parts. Yeah. So there is no, at least not a shock is not going to affect it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I guess if you've got the money, Sure, play around with it, but otherwise, uh, you know, uh, give it give it a couple of years. Two years down the road, I, I think there's going to be a lot of options from Apple with these. Uh, so it, you know, give it a little time, and we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Travis has uh, a follow up question to something to a uh, something we've almost kind of beat into the ground here, but but uh, I think it's worth uh, it's a good question. You guys have mentioned in two episodes about how Time Machine used multiple links to reference the same file. I have many files on my system that are the same files, but in different location. Is there a way to put the files in one location, then use hard links to reference them? That would be helpful for my iTunes library and other uses from the guy with his eye on the sky, Travis. This has been read by Apple Alex. All right. So first of all, yeah, he, he had Apple's uh, Alex speak, speech synthesis do that. And the coolest thing about it, John, is you actually hear breaths and you, you guys can go back and rewind a little bit and hear you'll hear it at, at the periods in the in the sentences. Alex actually takes a breath and then continues speaking. All right. So hard links. There actually is a way to do hard links, but you have to do them as far as I know from the, the terminal and it's using the using the command ln and and the basic format is you type ln space the name of the file that already exists space the name of the new file wherever you want it to exist and uh, and that will create a hard link if you want to create a soft link ie an alias you can do that ln space dash s space old file space new file uh, or new file name if you will that said, John, you had a, a very interesting point about this. 
Well, I guess it could all, so it sounds like in this case, the, the location and the knowledge of all the files being, um, you know, in different places, but, uh, um, is known. So the, the thing with the hard links, uh, the, the big advantage is that, you know, things won't get confused where the soft links, if, if things just move around or, or disappear, um, it, it's less clear, but I would say, and actually, yeah, so, so command line, or you just go to the file menu, um, and would do, um, make alias, which is uh, also Clover L. Um, I think that's another option, and then you don't have to go to the command line. But uh, funny how they don't have a, a way to make a hard link from the finder, just a, just a soft link, a.k.a. alias. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think the whole concept, I mean, we've, we've talked about hard links a couple times, and we keep getting questions, and, you know, I think we're explaining it as best we can, but it is kind of a an interesting, it's a concept that doesn't, come naturally, I guess, in the whole gestalt of the way we've come to know the way our computers work. And that is, you know, a, a directory entry equals a file, whereas with hard links, eh, not so much. You know, it, it, you can pull one or the other. They're both the same, et cetera, et cetera, like we've discussed. So maybe that's why they've they've kind of pulled that out. Even in even in the Unix realm, uh, I don't wind up using hard links a whole lot, even from the command line. Uh, I more often than not, it's if I'm going to do a link, it's a soft link. And it just makes it easier to manage, I guess. I don't know. Practice, I guess, is what it comes down to. It's just how it's all been used. Right, John? Absolutely. Our second sponsor for this show is Smile on My Mac. And uh, the software that we're going to talk about from them is PDF Pen. PDF Pen is a fantastic way to manage all your PDFs or manage any individual PDFs. You can take, uh, uh, open up a PDF in it, pull pages out, reorder things. You can actually take three or four PDFs, open them, pull pages from couple, couple pages from one, couple pages from another, put them in order, reorder them. If you want to write on the PDF, you can do that with text. You can do that with graphics. And if you've got, say, your signature in a, if you've scanned your signature, you can paste your signature right in or any other graphic. If you've got a logo that you want to put in or annotate things, PDF pen, $49.95 available from smileonmymac.com. But you can try before you buy and you very well should go ahead to smileonmymac.com and download a trial version of PDF, PDF pen rather. Go check it out. Uh, it For me, it's a piece of software I use, if not every day, certainly multiple times a week and it's come in very handy. So PDF pen from Smile on My Mac. Com. And with that, we will move on and listen to what Phil has to ask us. Hi, John and Dave. This is Bill Weller. I'm calling with a question on Activity Monitor. And the question in particular is, what does the values in the percent CPU column represent? I always thought it was the percent of the CPU that's being used by the particular process that's identified on that row. But I'm sitting here watching my IDVD process register in at values between 127% and 98%. And most of the time, it's spending in the 108 to 120% range. And I have not overclocked my computer. So I was wondering if you knew what the row of uh, value of uh, the percent CPU for each process means. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the, the show and the work, and I'll leave you my contact information. No, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay, so um, I think there are two possibilities here. So one, 
is that we've got a localized disruption of the space-time continuum. And <laughs> time is... No. That's very silly. Um, I'm going to bet... I'm going to bet bet it all that we're talking a system here that has more than one core or processor. Yeah. And in that case, so what it's telling you is... I don't. It's not lying to you, but it's representing it in in a way that that's kind of unusual. Because, and Dave and I had actually poked through some of the different parts of the system that report how much um, time or percentage of resources being used to do something, and I think we came to the conclusion that an activity monitor, when it lists a process and then it lists the CPU, that figure is the total amount of CPU with one processor being 100% that's being spent on that. So I think what you're seeing is that IDVD is actually taking more than, um, it, it's using both processors. That's why you're seeing a number that's greater than 100. But uh, as they found by doing a little digging and doing some command line stuff, it seems activity monitor is the only thing that reports things in this odd way where you could apparently are getting more than 100%, which of course doesn't make any sense though it kind of does when you think about what it's it's trying to display actually we we found that top and activity monitor report things the same way so top when you're looking at the each individual process it reports it just as activity monitor does with 100 percent equal to the full capacity of one cpu uh what what gets sort of inconsistent is in both top and activity monitor. Now at the top is just a command that you can run from the terminal and it's, it's actually worth running. It, it's an interesting display, very, very similar to activity monitor, but at the, at the uh, uppermost portion of the top display, it shows you overall usage of the CPU. And that is out of a hundred percent for a hundred percent equals the entire system. So it's inconsistent with itself. And the same with activity monitor at the bottom of activity monitor window, you can click on CPU and see percent idle percent system percent user percent nice. And those are all again, 100% equals full machine capacity. So the only place you're seeing 100% equals one core or one CPU is in the individual application or process lines. Very confusing, but uh, once you once you get used to it, you're really looking for relative uh, figures anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Right, John? So I wonder if overclocking would make now. It shouldn't. No, it wouldn't matter because it it, no. it, it doesn't matter at the speed of the CPUs. It's the it's how much they can do. 100 percent would just mean you can do more if you overclocked it. That's all. And, you know, I, I got something the other day. I. I don't know if it was spam, but it was an email encouraging people to. Um, so a mini tangent here, but it's something that just makes me nervous. Yeah. Is um, something that encouraged people to overclock their systems because, well, you know, the vendors design the chips to run faster, and a lot of chips will, you know, have a, you know, diodes or resistors or whatever to where you can select from multiple clock speeds. Um, and and I know there's a whole subculture of people out there that just love doing this sort of thing to oh, squeak yeah. those, you know, extra megahertz or gigahertz, probably megahertz, <laughs> um, out of the processor. And, and it just makes me nervous because, yes, you can probably, there's, you know, a little wiggle room where you can run the thing a little faster than it's it's graded. But unless, and, and this is where I think you have the subculture and they know what they're doing, the first thing is that higher frequency always means more heat and more energy, or at least more heat. 
And the way a lot of people deal with this is, is, you know, either more heat sinks, more fans or some, you know, hardcore, including Apple and, you know, Alien and these guys, liquid cooling. But it just makes me nervous because the flavor of the email was ah, just, you know, kind of go and, and do this. And and uh, it's a good thing. And, you know, I think it was actually encouraging people to destroy their computers because. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you can cook a processor. I, I've, I've done it before where I mean, I've, I haven't done it with an overclocked machine. I've done it where a fan burns out. And uh, the CPU didn't shut down itself in time. Whatever internal, you know, fail safes there were didn't didn't grab mm -hmm. it and it just cooks it. Um, what really sucks is when you do that and it's in a machine that's about a thousand miles away from you that you rely on, you know, for mission critical <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, not so good. <laughs> but you live and you learn. But uh yeah, it, it, it's an interesting thing. Now, you, you know, this does bring up an interesting discussion. We can take this on a little tangent here, John. You know, how can one process use more than one CPU, right? I mean, everything we know about computers says you feed the CPU an instruction, it processes that, and then it spits it back. So how is it possible to feed the same instruction to multiple CPUs, right? Because if you're getting more than 100%, more than one core is working on your task at once. Mm -hmm. And, and of course I asked this question and, and know the answer it, what, what happens is an app like IDVD and, and most apps in OS 10 run what, what are called threads, which means that for the entire process, there's actually multiple threads or multiple operations happening and they can happen simultaneously. And, and John, you may, you may not like the way I explain this because you actually know this stuff. But but in in my in my layman's you know human translation, uh, you're you're feeding all these threads to a queue, and they just get processed whenever they can. So if there's space available on the other core, the the queue manager kind of ships stuff off to one core or the other, depending on on where there's uh, where there's room to run it. And that's how you can get more than one core working on an entire app. Does that uh, did I blow that, John, completely? No, I. Uh... Yeah, I, I wouldn't wrestle with with a lot of it. it yeah, well, we'll say, and I guess that's one of the hard parts of um, you know designing an operating system is how do you do that in a smart way? How do you know that you have a chunk of work that you can hand off efficiently and then hand off another chunk of work and you know by the time and and try to get as much utilization as possible? Right. Um, I was actually doing some uh, you know a tangent to a tangent, but I was actually doing some MATLAB work today. MATLAB being a uh, uh, platform or a, a environment where you can do math and other operations. And it has, and, and I was playing with multi-threading today. The problem is not all libraries or programs know how to do that right. Um, a lot do, like obviously IDVD does, if it's taken up, you know, more than, you know, it's uh, taking multiple processes, but some don't like the video encoder that I was using right. the other day that came in FFmpeg, it would run and it would peg one of my processors and it would be a hundred percent. And the other one would just be sitting there doing nothing. Now, actually, what I was able to do was run two instances of it, and then it took 100% of each processor. Um, oh, yeah, of course. But yeah, so especially now. Now we got eight cores, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. Actually, I, I've seen that on menu meters. You got eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It takes up your whole menu bar. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, all right. Speaking of cores, Connor writes in and asks, is there a way to turn off a core on a multi-core Mac? Try as I might, I couldn't find that option. I'm running on a MacBook, which has an Intel Core 2 Duo 2.2 gigahertz processor on Leopard. And you can, I, I know I'd mentioned this before that you can do it. 
Uh, what I had failed to mention was that I had gone to the uh, developer.apple.com site and installed the Chud tools. And John, Chud means? Yeah, I don't have it in front of me. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's tools. Very cool tools. Uh, they're part of the, it's part of the developer tools, and I think they're on the Leopard DVD, but you can certainly go and download them uh, from developer.apple.com slash tools slash download, actually. And uh, mm-hmm. it once you've installed it, it installs a slash developer folder on the top level of your hard drive. If you look in there in the extras folder in preference panes, there's one called processor and you can add that pref pane to your, uh, you know, add it to your system preferences. And then in tiger, it actually allows you to add a menu item that lets you turn off one core. Uh, and then in, in leopard, that, that menu item doesn't work because leopard changed that whole infrastructure, but you can still do it right there in the, uh, in the system preferences pane. Now I mentioned that that would in theory lower your uh, battery usage. And I swear to you, John, I've tried this in tiger on my MacBook pro and it did my, it, it lowered, you know, obviously shut off one core. You could see it with menu meters. Mm-hmm. It was only, it was only running one core and the other core was just blank. It wasn't zero. It was just not non-existent mm-hmm. and battery usage, you know, went up Well, I tried this the other night. Uh, we recorded the podcast on Sunday. My family was gone. I had the computer. I had my MacBook pro over at the house, had a fire going and stuff. And, uh, was doing some stuff and I thought, you know, I'm running on the battery. Let me turn off the core because we had talked about it during the show. And I turned off the core and battery, you know, my battery time remaining went from, you know, like two and a half hours down to like 45 minutes. It was cooking that thing. And I don't know, maybe it's mm. not compatible with Leopard or maybe Leopard was confused by it and it really wasn't using that much. But yeah, it, it the only thing I could think of was, you know, I was doing some stuff on the computer and it was obviously spreading it out across both cores as soon as i turned off one core it was loading up everything onto onto just that one and i was thinking maybe it speed stepped that core up faster because it was you know at 60 percent utilization instead of you know 25 or 30 percent and that was actually causing it to use more power that this is a a theory an an unresearched theory but but may hold some water but yeah it was very interesting to see that uh, turning off the core was a very bad idea for for battery uh savings so yeah now i've installed this also um chud which is a computer hardware understanding development tools very nice um and and on one machine that I have here, it's actually in the hardware portion of system preferences. And when you click on it, now this could explain maybe what you saw here, Dave. Okay. Uh, depending on the version of the utility. So one thing it lets you do um, on a lot of systems, maybe not in the Intel, I'm looking at a Motorola, but it has a little checkbox, allow nap, which no. is kind of like a power cycling, low power mode. That doesn't um, exist on the motor, on the Intel. Yeah. Okay, you don't have that checkbox. No. Um, now, another thing this utility does is lets you um, modify or ignore the uh, various caches. Like in this case, uh, level two cache, it lets you set it to uh, a value or it lets you disable it. And I could almost guarantee that you're wow. going to be running less efficiently if you disable your level two cache. Uh, um, but I wonder if... if fiddling with yeah because maybe it doesn't directly support leopard it was uh either you know messing up the cache or or changing the power uh you know power consumption or yep. something like that even if it wasn't displayed right 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 but that's odd yeah i would expect one core to consume less power than two but yeah, yeah. you there john no, i'm i'm, I'm 
All right. You know, last time, last week I tried to bring the band in and it got all funky and, uh, and jittery on this end. And I did the mm-hmm. same thing just now and it just got all funky and jittery. So I think I'm going to leave the band out of it. Uh, I will try one more time, but maybe there's a problem. <laughs> maybe this hard drive's not doing well. And maybe it's the file that, that the band plays from that's, uh, that's causing trouble here. Are we, uh, let's see. I think we're okay. We've got the band running. Yay. All right. Hi, band. Hi, band. That's right. Let's, uh, let's go figure there. Uh, yeah. So we have, uh, you know, at, at TMO, I don't know. John, do you use Twitter? No, I'm not ADD enough to really. <laughs> I, I actually do. I, I've found Twitter to be a very uh, interesting way to keep extended community going Uh you know, when, when I'm, you know, alone in my office, essentially, it's I found it actually quite useful for a number of reasons. But we've also added a Twitter feed from TMO. Any you can subscribe to. Uh, I think it's Twitter dot com slash Mac Observer. If you just go to if you go to Mac Observer, there's a link for Twitter on the in the sidebar there that will tell you all about it. Uh, and it'll let you subscribe to the uh, headline updates right from TMO. So in your, right in your Twitter feed, if you use Twitterific or whatever Twitter app you use, bam, a new article is posted at TMO, and it's right there in your uh, – the headline is right there in your Twitter feed. You can click on it, and it brings you right there. And, uh, and then we've also got TMO Talk, uh, which is a kind of a community of, of – the edit, the on-duty editors, and and any readers uh, that can communicate there too. So it's actually kind of a cool thing. Stephen has uh, Stephen Swift set set all this up for us. He's a real rock star with this, and uh, he got it all going. So check it out if you're if you're so inclined. Twitter can be a an interesting little thing. But you're right. Yeah, it takes a little bit of that ADD thing going on, and it can be it can be a huge distraction. I have found when I sign off Twitter for a couple of days, John, that uh, I, I actually wind up getting more work done. So there you go. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's worth checking out. Uh, Podcast Marketplace this month, John, has the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, the free download from audible.com as long as you use the right link, PDF pen from Smile on My Mac, and of course, Harman etravel.com for all your travel needs. Uh, do we have anything else to tell them? Thank you for all the comments on iTunes. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we wanted 100. It's now up to like 120 something now. Wait, yeah, 125, I think, last time I checked. So, yeah, thank you. Keep them coming, though. We like to see them. It's a good thing. Uh, we like to hear what, what you have to say, be it positive, negative. Again, if you're going to say something negative, it's great. Just make it polite. Nobody on iTunes wants to read, you know, some scathing thing. If you have something scathing to say, send it to us directly. We're happy to read it there. Not happy, but, you know, we take it all in stride. It's a good thing. Uh, That's it, right? We're out of here. Cashfly Hosting is the place you download the show from, and Michael Johnston from iPhone Alley has converted it to AAC for your listening, viewing, and linking pleasure. Yeah, you can call us, you know, 206-666-GEEK. I always forget that. Skype to MacGeekGab or email the feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You know the problem with that football game? Yeah, what's the problem there, John? The ball didn't get caught. <laughs> Made up.